Let's pray together. Father, come and help us by your Holy Spirit that we might not be hearers only of the word, but do what it says. And we pray that by your Spirit, you might produce 10,000 acts of obedience that come from this morning. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, our city hosted the annual NFL draft. And so for three days, all the top prospects of athletes from around the country came together and they were drafted over these three days onto various NFL teams. And what you come to learn about the draft is that every year, every single year without fail, there are prospects that look perfect on paper. They have exactly the size that your team needs, the, the speed that you're looking for, the skill set that you need at that spot, and yet inevitably, every year without fail, you get what the industry would call a bust. Someone that looks perfect on paper and yet does not pan out onto the field. For example, would you raise your hand if you know the name Giovanni Carmazzi? Or if you know the name T. Martin? Or have ever heard of Spurgeon Wynn? Would you raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Tom Brady? Right? Now, what you wouldn't know is those first three names are just three of the six quarterbacks that were all drafted before Tom Brady, that on paper seemed like the ideal candidate. In fact, in the year 2000, 198 players were drafted before Tom Brady. Perfect on paper, exactly what you would need, and yet every team would know if you could take that one back. Because inevitably you're going to have people that look perfect on paper and yet turn out to be a bust. Well, that's exactly what you would describe the people in Isaiah 58. If you get to Isaiah 58 in a similar way, you learn that the religion of God's people is a total bust, meaning they look perfect on paper. Don't get me wrong. Everything about them seems perfect. In fact, I would even say they're exactly the kind of community of faith you would be looking for. If you were moving into town for the first time, and you were looking for a church, a community to gather with, I'm telling you, you would seriously consider joining the church in Isaiah 58. Because if you visited them, you'd find a people that read their Bibles consistently and studied it seriously. If you gathered with them for worship, you would find that they sang passionately and their preacher preached perfectly. If you spent time with them, it would be obvious in a moment's notice that they cared deeply about sound theology. They were precise with their doctrine. They refuted that which was error. They sought God daily in prayer. They were even the kind of assembly that would gather together on a Friday night voluntarily to fast. Though there was no commandment binding them to, they did everything perfectly. And yet... This perfect on-paper church is actually a bust, a total bust. And Savamal wrote, as we continue this series on what the Bible has to say about justice, we need to hear Isaiah 58. We need to hear it lest we become a church, lest we be a church that is perfect on paper and yet a total bust. The chapter begins with God calling on the prophet to make an announcement. So turn to Isaiah 58. We're going to be in those 14 verses. You're going to need to look up and down that chapter. 651 is the page. So turn with me there. 
Verse 1, God begins by calling on the prophet to make an announcement. This is what it says. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. God tells Isaiah, listen Isaiah, I need you to cry aloud. That's literally shout at the top of your lungs would be the phrase there. I need you to not hold back. In fact, lift your voice like a trumpet. A trumpet in Israel would have been used to sound the alarm or to summon the entire nation together because everyone needed to come together. That's what a trumpet was for. It's almost like if a fire alarm went off right now, none of you would simply sit there and let me just keep preaching and we wouldn't pretend that we weren't hearing bells around us. It would halt everything. Everyone would stop what they're doing and take notice and pay attention. And that's the word here. Isaiah, you are to cry aloud, you are to shout at the top of your lungs, you are to lift your voice like a trumpet. And so you imagine, after reading that, what kind of people do you expect to read about? I mean, what kind of people do you imagine need to be urgently, loudly, and immediately told about their sin, declared their transgression? If this were the first time you were reading Isaiah 58, you'd almost imagine that you're about to hear a description of, of some scene that looks like Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras, right? Or some scene out of Sin City on the Strip in Las Vegas. Some kind of trashing of the Ten Commandments. Some kind of people that are in such debauchery that, that their lives couldn't be shown on regular TV. That kind of scene is what you'd expect. And then you get this, verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? It's at that point you go, wait, time out. These people, this church, is not loitering in the streets. They're assembled in the sanctuary. They're not swearing profanity. They're singing praises and saying prayers. They're not gluttons and drunkards. No, the opposite. They're fasting voluntarily with no command binding them to do so. They are a people, these verses say, who seek God daily, who delight to know God's ways, who delight to draw near to God. So you'd ask yourself, what could possibly be so wrong, so offensive, so egregious about a group of people who read their Bibles consistently and sing their songs passionately and pray regularly and seek God daily? And if you ask that church, by the way, they would have agreed. Because Israel has a question also in verse 3. It's more of a complaint. They say, why have we fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take notice, no notice of it? They would say, we don't get it either. We fast and it seems like God doesn't even see. We seek him and humble ourselves and it seems like God doesn't even take notice. They're doing all this stuff. They're practicing their religion perfectly and yet God doesn't seem to be responding. We don't know exactly what they're asking for. We don't know exactly what they're praying. But it seems like something bad is happening they're making their prayers known. They're doing what they need to do, and God's not responding. It's as if they're asking, God, we're pushing all the right buttons. As if, sort of like, if God is this ATM machine, we know the code. You tell us to pray, 
and you tell us to fast, and you tell us to sing and to assemble, we're, we're pushing all the right buttons, and yet God is not dispensing anything. So what gives? And, and here's the thing. Despite how perfect on paper they look, there's a clue that something is wrong. Something is off here. You notice those two English words, as if. You saw that in verse 2. Translated in our Bibles, they add the words, as if. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. To be as if you're something and to be something is very different. Right? To be like something and to actually be that something is very different. It's almost like if someone was having a, having a heart attack, and I said, everybody stand back. I'm like a doctor, right? <laughs> that, that would inspire laughter rather than confidence. If I said, don't worry about it, I'm basically, it's as if I'm a cardiologist. That would be very different than if John George from our church said, everybody stand back. I am a doctor. I am a cardiologist. To be like a doctor and to be a doctor are two very different things. To be like a people that do righteousness. And to be a people that do righteousness is two different things. To be like a church that does righteousness and to be a church that does righteousness is two very different things. And that as if, that like, is what makes their religion a bust. And God will tell them why in verse 3 and following. Look at this. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Now God says a number of things, but here's essentially what he's saying. Their religion is a bust because there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between their life in the sanctuary and their life in society. There's a variance. There's a divergence. There's a disconnect between who they are in the assembled sanctuary and who they are in life in the sanctuary, in the society. You know, there's a, a well-known sermon that's often quoted around Good Friday and Easter during Holy Week. And this preacher has this brilliant refrain in his sermon. He preaches it on Good Friday, and this refrain is, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? On Good Friday, you remember that Easter Sunday's coming. And so this preacher repeatedly say, it's only Friday, but Sunday's coming. Well, preachers have rightly pointed out, it's almost as if Isaiah 58's refrain would be, it's Sunday, but Monday's coming. It's only Sunday, but Monday's coming because Monday is the test of Sunday. Because Monday's actions are the test of Sunday's worship. It's Sunday, Isaiah 58 would say, 
and everything about your assembly on Sunday is perfect on paper. But Monday's coming, and Monday's actions will reveal the test of Sunday's worship. There's a disconnect for the people, for this church in Isaiah 58. And the particular area of disconnect, hear this, between how they looked on paper and what they really were, between their life in the sanctuary and their life in society, the particular area of disconnect in this chapter is around the topic we would call social justice. It's around all the things we're considering over these weeks. The particular area of disconnect for them is around social justice. It's their social justice from Monday through Saturday. It's as if God would be saying to this church, you've got your singing down. You've got your praying perfect. You've got your preaching sound. Your doctrine is spot on. Your theology is precise. You've even got the disciplines like fasting. You have all of it down, but here is what's missing. Here's what's missing from your worship, right? They're fasting in this chapter. Here's what's missing from your worship. Here's what it would take for it to be what I am looking for. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. To share your bread with the hungry. To provide shelter for the homeless poor. To clothe the naked. See, if if we were going to try and connect what we said last week with what we're saying this week. We said last week, looking at Psalm 146, that our entry into justice begins by worshiping a God of justice. We said Psalm 146, praise the Lord who sets the prisoner free and opens the sight for the blind and who lets the oppressed grow. Praise the Lord. And we said our steps into this conversation about justice has to begin by singing praise to a God of justice. Well then, Isaiah would add, If your worship, Psalm 146, of that God is going to be true, for it to be true worship, then there's a dimension to our worship that cannot happen in the sanctuary, but must happen in society. For it to be true worship, worship that is confined to the sanctuary is incomplete. It must spill out into the streets. If it's going to be limited to this room, it will be incomplete. It must spill out into the streets for it to be true worship. Psalm 146 is what we should sing here. Isaiah 58 is what we should live out there. And both are needed for it to be true worship. Because otherwise, your worship is not what I choose, God is saying. It's essentially this. A piety that doesn't care about society is a fallacy. I came up with that all by myself, by the way. Right? Hear that. A piety that doesn't care about society is a fallacy. I was reading about William Wilberforce, the abolitionist back in England who fought for 40 years for the end of slavery and the slave trade in England. He, he says it starkly this way. He said, as he reflected on it, a private faith, that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. A private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. Your piety must extend beyond the sanctuary and into society and into the streets. 
Because if what we said last week is true, that this is a God that we worship, a God who has so identified himself with the lowest and the least. I was so struck as Pastor Benu preached. He, he had this throwaway line of saying, you know, God is the one with all resources, all riches, all power. And in our world, what do the people with all the resources and all the riches and all the power do? Once you become a VIP, the benefit of that is you get to hang out with all the other VIPs. The point of being a VIP is now you're given access into the exclusive places no one else does. And the rich use their power to hang out with the rich. And the powerful hang out with the powerful. And yet the most powerful being there is in the universe hangs out in the slums and identifies with the poor and spends his resources and his power with the least. And if what we said last week is true, if God has so identified with the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant or alien or refugee or stranger, then essentially Isaiah 58 is saying, if you don't love and serve them, you cannot consider that you have loved or served God. That this is a barometer, this is a thermometer of our relationship with God. This is what's missing in your worship. To loose the bonds of the oppressed and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and shelter the homeless poor. This seven-mile road is what it means from being like a person that does righteousness to being a person that does righteousness. This is the shift from being like a church that does righteousness to being a church that does righteousness. Even that, let me tell you what I learned this week. That word righteousness. The word righteousness is often translated in our English Bibles as being righteous, or it can also be translated as being just, right? Both are equal translations. You could say being just or being righteous, and both would account for the same thing. In, in Matthew, for example, there's this place where Joseph, Jesus' dad, it says that he did what he did because being a just man or being a righteous man. And so that word righteous or righteousness what do we think of when we think of someone who is righteous? When we think of a righteous person, I, at least, tend to think in a category that could be best described as sort of private morality. When I think of a person who's righteous, I think of someone who keeps the commands and reads their Bible. She prays regularly. She's devoted to God. She's really spiritual. She's really close to God. That's what I think of when I think of a person that's righteous. What I learned this week is that in the Bible, this word righteous includes not only this idea of being right with God, what we'd call private morality, but also being right with others. That there's a social dimension to this idea of righteousness. It's not just right with God, it's right with all your relationships. In fact, with everything. That's the Bible's idea of righteousness. For example... Let me read you this section from Job. Job is declaring himself to be a righteous person. He's describing what righteousness in flesh and blood looks like. Listen to Job 29, verses 12 through 17. It says this, Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him, the blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on, there's our word, righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. 
I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Here's what I'd ask you to consider. What is the righteous person in that passage doing? And I'd simply have us consider he's not just having his quiet time. He's not just reading a theology book. He's not just writing a sermon. The righteous person is helping the blind and helping the lame and fathering the fatherless and working against people and systems of oppression and snatching people like prey out of the fangs of the wicked. This is what it means to be a righteous person. And inversely then, to not be these things and to not do these things is what it means to be an unrighteous person. To not be these things, to not do these things, is what it means to be an unrighteous person. I won't take you there, but if you turn to two more chapters in Job. In Job 31, he's got this other section in verse 16 and following, where he calls upon and he says these things. He says, look, if I have withheld anything from the poor that they desire, listen to this. If, if I ate while someone needy wasn't eating, if I denied the need of another, if someone was cold and they didn't get warmth from the fleece of my sheep, then he says, let my arm fall out of its socket and my shoulder be broken. If I fail to do these things, Job counts it as sin that is worthy of the judgment of God. Would you hear that? If I fail to do these things, it is accountable to God as sin. Now, take that in for a second. When we think of these things, feeding the poor, helping the lame, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoner, when we think of these things, we use the word charity to describe that. And hidden behind the word charity is this simple assumption. It's optional. All charity is optional. Charity is a good thing. No one would fight you for that. But what we would fight over is whether it's optional or not. Hidden behind our word is this idea that it's a wonderful thing that you do it. You don't have to do it, but it's good if you do it. But not here. In the scriptures, to not share your bread, to not clothe the, 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 the cold, to not share the fleece of your sheep with those in need is not just you're not doing charity. It's the opposite of righteous. It's wickedness. It's unjust. To not do it is unjust. I read this lecture by this man named Bruce Waltke. I've seen his books in the library before, this very well-known Hebrew scholar. He gave a lecture at Westminster Seminary nearby. And he was commenting on the book of Proverbs and the word righteousness there. He gave this entire lecture, read through it, just broadening the word righteous in this brilliant way from this private, more vertical relationship with God to this horizontal understanding of social stuff and how we live among one another. And he, he came up with just this pithy sentence. He said, if I were to tell you what righteousness is in the book of Proverbs, it's this. If you were to define wicked and righteous, it's this. The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. 
The wicked disadvantage others to advantage themselves. The righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. He says, the righteous are those who see their stuff and think of the community and the good it will do. And the wicked, not the optional, the wicked are those who see their stuff and say it's mine. And if that understanding of righteousness and wickedness were used as you read through the Bible, how broad would those words begin to be? He goes on to say, let me read you this one quote that Walkie says in his lecture. He says, most English speakers, I suspect, when they think of wickedness, think in terms of the Ten Commandments. For most, wickedness refers to murder, adultery, stealing, and lying. But in Proverbs, wickedness pertains to the finer points of not feeding the poor when you have the power to do so of not honoring the honorable, of not stopping gossip in its tracks, and so forth. He defines it, if he's right, that righteousness is not just staying away from what's wrong, but doing what's right. And wickedness is not just doing what's wrong, but not doing what's right. It's much broader, much more sweeping in its indictment of us. Walkie, in his lecture, he goes on to give some examples that are just stuck in my head. He said, for example, if you're a student in college and the professor gives you an assignment and, of course, he assigns a book that is no longer out of print, he says a Christian student that understands righteousness and wickedness does not then run to the library and grab the only copy of that book so that I can get an A and disadvantage all my classmates. He goes so far as to say that is wickedness. That's wickedness because a righteous student ensures that his peers have every advantage that he would want himself for that A. He goes on into lots of areas. He says, when you're driving, a righteous driver does not cut off someone else to spare themselves a minute at the expense of his neighbor's minute. And as he narrows what these words mean, my world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Right? Because then, I don't know about you, then you begin to go, how wicked am I? And what righteousness is there in me? I mean, if, if this vision of what God is looking for comes down to how I behave in the classroom, how I drive on the highway, then who is righteous? And how much of the world is wicked? And what does injustice actually mean? And we're not free just because we didn't actively oppress. How unjust are we? How wicked are we? But here's the thing. Isaiah 58, and the Bible itself is not given just to guilt you. Because is this not where a Christian goes? Jesus really is righteous. And now I get it more broader than I ever thought. When I say Jesus, when you say Jesus is the righteous one, when Romans would say, there is no one righteous, not one, we'd go, amen. And when we say, he though is righteous, in that broadest definition, we'd say, it fits. Not only did he do the Ten Commandments, not only did he not do what was wrong, he always did what was right in its fullest sense. As often as he had opportunity, as often as he had power, he did all the good he could do. He undid all the wrong that he could do. This is who Jesus is. He really is righteous. And our gospel, our good news, is the truth 
that the one who had every advantage disadvantaged himself so that we could be advantaged. That's right. He is righteous. So when I come back to Isaiah 58, I should say to myself, if the gospel's true, then in my wickedness, I was naked. Spiritually, I was exposed. If you saw me all the way through, you would be horrified or you'd laugh or you'd scorn. But then I believe, I remember, he was stripped. He was made naked. He was horrified and humiliated and scorned. So that through that, we could be covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How then will we not clothe the naked? I was spiritually bankrupt. And not just that I didn't have anything to present God. Worse than that, I was indebted. My debt towards God was like a mountain I could never repay. Like an ocean I couldn't get to the bottom of. And yet, what is the good news? The good news, Corinthians says, is he, though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that in and through his poverty we might become rich. How then will I see my stuff as my stuff? My resources as my resources, as though God had poured all this stuff just to keep building up my bank balance so that I could build bigger barns and store all my stuff. That's unjust. The gospel would demand us, demand us to say, are not our resources then to be poured out for the poor as his resources were poured out for us? We could keep going. I was oppressed and imprisoned and enslaved to a power I couldn't break and I couldn't beat and I couldn't get out of. And I had an enemy who had me like prey in the fangs of his teeth. But he came and he was imprisoned and he was shackled and he was held down. And through that, he broke the teeth of the wicked and set me that prey free. How will we not do the same? This is the gospel. This is the good news. And once this gospel motivates us, and once the Holy Spirit Jesus has given us transforms us, here's the last thing I want you to do, and then we'll be done. Would you consider the unbelievable promises that God has for those of his church who would move from a religion that's a bust to being and doing what he wants? Would you just hear these promises? Verse 8 and following. This is what's held out. If we would be a people who pour ourselves out for these, for the lowest, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the spreading wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the new day. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I'll stop there. Would you hear all these promises that are held out if we will be the church that God wants us to be? 
That if we pour ourselves out, this is what he promises. It's worth you to consider, go back on, lock on to one, and hold God to his word. How beautiful would this look in your life? How beautiful would we look in Philadelphia? He sang to us, if you give yourself to this, your light will shine in darkness. Your righteousness, actual righteousness, will break forth like the dawn in Philadelphia. There'll be healing. There'll be righteousness that goes before you, the glory of the Lord before, behind you. You'll call out to the Lord and he'll answer. You'll cry and he'll say, here I am. You'll be like a watered garden and, and you'll be a spring at the same time so that even as you pour yourself out, you'll never run dry. You'll be a repairer and a restorer. Listen, said my road, I don't even know what all these promises mean, but I want them. And I want them for me, and I trust that I want them for the city and the world through us. I want them, and this is what God promises to his people. So, if we worship a God of justice, Psalm 146, then true worship needs to extend beyond the sanctuary into society. Our piety will extend beyond this place into the streets into tens of thousands of acts of justice. Then our righteousness will break forth like the dawn. Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks for your word.